0: with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy even with these words they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them now I should go back a little bit Paul made a tactical error here and he probably was unaware of it Um, I have made some very interesting tactical blunders in foreign countries like holding hands with the wrong person whether some countries you're not supposed to hold hands with a guy others you're not supposed to hold hands with the same anyhow Easy to make a cross-cultural blunder. Paul stared at the lame man who had faith and called out in a loud voice. Unfortunately, all the legends about the Greek gods said this is what they did when they took human form. They stared intently at you, and they spoke in a deep, loud voice. So poor poor Paul, you know, God has pointed out to him that this man has faith to be healed, and he inadvertently messes up, and he's mistaken for a Greek god come in human form. But at least he, they were not willing to accept the worship. And because they realized they were not dealing with Jews, they couldn't go back and start explaining Old Testament law and the fulfillment of prophecies. They started with just the fact that you are worshiping worthless things. We are worshiping the living God, the creator of all. Christians do not worship a pantheon of gods. We worship one God, creator, sustainer, redeemer of all things. And they point out some very basic things to them. Where do you think your rain comes from? It comes from the good and living God. You ought to wonder about that and wonder how it happens to come when you need it. Crops grow. You ought to wonder about how that happens. God gave you crops. He gave you nature. He gave you rain. He gave you brains, because you turn your crops into food. Did you ever wonder how you got that sort of innate ability to figure out problems in life? Like, how do I turn this stalk of wheat into something edible to sustain me? And he gave us emotions. Paul and Barnabas mentioned joy. God also gave us the ability to respond and love him. So all these natural, general ways of revealing himself, that's how they start out, explaining the good news of the one living God to this crowd of absolute pagans. Well, something interesting happens. Then some Jews came from Antioch, where Paul, had, Paul and Barnabas had been expelled, and from Iconium, where there was a plot to stone them, And they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. Now, we don't know exactly when then was. Was it coincidence that in the middle of this parade and bulls and sacrifices and tearing robes and saying no 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 we're not gods was it coincidence that the jews just happened to show up then or is this then you know days or weeks later we don't really know Um, write that question down ask saint paul when you when you get to heaven and then the other interesting point here is after Paul was stoned and dragged outside the city and left for dead, the disciples gathered around him. Now, were these disciples from Antioch and Iconium? And they knew that an angry crowd was traveling down the road to get Paul, so they hot-footed it along also, maybe trying to get there first to warn him? Or if this then was a little bit later... Maybe these were disciples from Lystra itself, the city they were in. So I don't know exactly when then was, but what a fickle crowd. One day, one moment, they're ready to worship. The gods have come among us. Well, there had been a miracle. A lame man got up and walked. And Paul and Barnabas had to explain that it was the work of the one true living God, not them. So why so fickle? I mean, were they embarrassed that they had started to worship Paul and Barnabas and now they thought, oh, oh, we better go overboard appeasing the gods so we'll just kill Paul and Barnabas? Or you know, maybe, maybe if it then was a little bit later they had gotten word that in other cities um, this new Christianity thing, was seen as a threat to Rome, and maybe somebody had made a threat. Man, you, you side with these guys, and you are on the bad side of Rome, and you don't want to be on the bad side of Rome. Or what I didn't mention about Lystra earlier was it was known as a real backwater, redneck, uneducated town. These people didn't have a ton of smarts. Maybe they were just gullible, Maybe that's why they went from worshiping on the one side to being willing to stone Paul on the other side. So there's a lot of unknowns here. We don't know when the Jews came and stoned Paul. We don't know disciples from which city helped him, and we don't really know why the crowd was so fickle to go from worshiping to stoning him. But what we do know is They dragged him outside the city and left him for dead. And the next day he got up and walked to another city. All right. Was this another healing miracle? Uh, Was he maybe just knocked unconscious? I don't know. But the next day he just walks on to the next city because there's preaching to be done. Same pattern. Preach, some accept, some reject. Miracles, some accept, some reject. Opposition, move on. Preach, some accept, some reject. Did you see the pattern? Has that pattern changed in 2,000 years? Preach, some accept, some reject. Hostility can get deep. Preach, some accept, some reject. Move on. Well, all we know about their... All we know about their ministry in the city of Derby Was that they want a large number of disciples Okay, that's all we hear And here comes The really interesting part Then they returned To Lystra Where Paul had been stoned and left for dead Then they returned To Iconium Where they had been threatened with stoning And fled For their lives, then they returned to Antioch Where they had been very intentionally expelled Told to get out They went back They went back Now, I have never been jumped Or mugged Or bullied Or slammed up against a locker I did have a dentist when I was five whose practice with children was to hold them down and slap them till they stopped crying before he drilled. To this day, I do not like the dentist. Physically, I've never had to endure anything like what Paul went through. Emotionally, I have dealt with family members and friends with chronic illness, terminal illness, mental illness that just doesn't go away And even when I am poorly treated Or exhausted Or it just seems hopeless You gotta go back You gotta go back And do it again You gotta stay in there As hard as it is You're called There's an impulse of the Holy Spirit In your life And you do it again And you do it again And nothing can make you stop Threats of death Threats of disowning threats of violence, nothing could stop Paul from doing it again. How? Why? Ah, dum-dum-dum. Well, we're missing a lot of the words here, so I'm going to pull them out of um, a real live paper Bible and read them to you because, of course, of course the key verse for the whole sermon is in this little bit that we're missing right here. So if you want to look along, um, Acts chapter 14, 22 and 23, they return to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples through teaching, through their words of encouragement, through clarifying, through giving them understanding, through teaching them the difference between pagan gods and the living God, encouraging them to remain true to the faith, Oh, yeah, don't worry about what happened to me. You just stay true to God. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't want you to think that this is, in order to be saved, you have to go through some really sick hazing. Not that. What they're referring to here is the idea that when Christ comes a second time, he will put together the finishing pieces on the kingdom of God that he's already established in which we live. Right now, we are beginning to see fruits of redemption. We see people coming to faith. We see healings. We see miracles. And at his second coming, this kingdom will be utterly completed, but between now and then, the reality is we live in a really hostile world. We live in a world in which there will be opposition from individuals, organizations, systems, political systems, economic systems, nations, other religions, spiritual powers. There's much in this hostile world that will not accept, oops, sorry, getting ahead of myself, will not accept The authority of God. And it's probably not a stretch to say, guys, do you get it? We have to go through a lot of suffering before we get to the kingdom of God. Not a stupid, sick hazing to get saved. Not God saying, all right, I'm going to screw you around something fierce, and then I'll consider whether or not you came through okay. But just the reality of living in a fallen world, In all this story, the miracle that gets me the most is isn't the man who was healed, who was lame and walked, and it wasn't even the fact that Paul got up and walked to Derby a day after getting stoned. The miracle, in the heart of hearts, that gets me the most is the miracle that he went back, and he went back, and he kept going back. It's his habit. Many times as we go through Acts, we'll see, as was their custom. As he usually did, he preached boldly. They continued. And we see words that suggest over and over that Paul would not give up despite the mixed bag of reactions that he got whenever he preached. Later on in 2 Corinthians, he'll, he'll write this. And this is, this is before two imprisonments and an eventual martyrdom. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, bandits, my fellow Jews, Gentiles, in the city, in the country, at sea, and from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked and besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Wow. Here is a guy who would not give up. I've always enjoyed, any time we go hiking, just seeing a tree growing out of the rocks or a flower growing up through the cement always affects me. That tenacity, that endurance, that willingness to keep going, what do you think was the effect on the new believers in Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra when Paul came back after each city had so mistreated and even threatened to kill him and attempted to kill him? What kind of reaction would they have had to hear that they were worth coming back for? I've, I've mentioned before that, um, I've gotten to visit Sierra Leone and West Africa a couple times. When the Civil War started, all Westerners left, whether they were with charities or churches, missionaries, all the Westerners left for several years. All Europeans and North Americans left. It was so dangerous. And when the opportunity came to go back right as the war was ending, I really debated, I mean... It was going to cost over $3,000. And I thought, if you got a war torn country, don't you need the money more than you need me? But a group of us went with world relief. And I asked one of the Christian leaders about that dilemma I'd had. And he said, no, no, no. It's so good that you came. The expression they used was, we felt like we were winking in the dark and no one saw us. And just the idea that they were worth going back, even before the war was completely over, the healing that could be accomplished just by sitting there for 10 days, hearing stories, horror stories, horrible stories, and affirming their worth, that it was a huge amount of money to them and to think that I'd spend it just to go to Sierra Leone. The power of going back. And since it's a uh, Black History Month, I think... Of Martin Luther King and even his work in Selma. Maybe you saw the movie Um, They had to cross a bridge to get from Selma to Montgomery Alabama and the first time he led a group of about 2000. It was um March 7th 1965 and they were attacked Two days later he said we're gonna do it again And they got to the bridge and it was pretty obvious they were going to be attacked and he said everybody kneel down We're gonna pray I mean, how frickin' vulnerable is that? Some of you have seen me get down on my knees, and you have both seen and heard me getting up again. Okay, that's a very vulnerable position when people are standing there with guns and water cannons and batons. And so the second time, they just knelt and prayed and turned around. And it was the third time he went back to the bridge on March 21st that they crossed. And he made it to Montgomery and there were injuries and there were deaths. He went back and why did the leader of the civil rights movement involve himself in that? To show the dignity and affirm the wealth, the worth of each of the individuals, the other 1,999 who were with him. There is power in showing up and going back and being there again. I think of a a very long-time friendship I've had with someone. And uh, at one point, she completely turned her back on God, the church, and anything associated with it. And the only Christian in her life was me, and I bore the full brunt for almost three years of all that anger and ridicule and sass, and it was awful. It was awful. But I was kind of in a dilemma, wasn't I? If I'm the only Christian she's got contact with, if I bail then what? I mean, I needed boundaries for sure. And yeah, I called her out, but you go back and you do it again and you hear it again and you get knocked down again and you endure, you endure because, because of the power of the Holy Spirit and the worth of the individual who is struggling One of the reasons I'm glad Paul went back is that um, there were two women in Lystra, and they were probably among the first to come to faith. And uh, one was, there was a mom, her daughter, and a little son. That little son's name was Timothy. Timothy was from Lystra. And Paul writes in his letters to Timothy about his grandma's faith and his mom's faith. And they raised Timothy in the faith. Timothy has a couple letters of the New Testament addressed to him. He was a constant traveling companion with Paul as an adult. He co-authored many of the books that Paul wrote. Um, He became a leader in several of the churches, influential with Paul's influence behind him. He eventually became the bishop of the church of Ephesus. What if Paul hadn't gone back? What if Paul hadn't gone back and Timothy had not been raised in the faith? Um, Argument from silence, but interesting that Paul went back and persevered. How did he do it? Well, the quick and glib answer is the Holy Spirit, right? Okay. All right, now we move away from the text a little bit, and let's, let's talk about character and personality. Okay, true, the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the Holy Spirit fact. I don't act like Paul. Second fact. I don't have that kind of endurance, tenacity, determination. Why? What's the difference? We all have the Holy Spirit. Well, the difference is, (laughs) here's the paradox. The power of the Holy Spirit is available, but it doesn't come naturally. It has to be developed, grown, experienced, exercised. It has, using the power of the Holy Spirit, has to become a habit. Good habits grow good character, the kind that Paul had. Christ-likeness, doing the right thing, whether in actions or thoughts, becomes habit when it's practiced over and over and over. Character comes from the power of right habits practiced over times. Habits are intentional actions done repetitively with the goal of developing character, character that benefits the entire community and pleases God. Good habits grow good character going to let you multitask here. Listen to me if you want to look at this. Um, this is from the Apostle Peter. Make every effort. Guys, I think too often we think, if I accept Christ, it should just be a cakewalk from then on. I mean, if I accept Christ, shouldn't he just give me the ability to be a mature Christian? Shouldn't it just happen automatically? And then the flip side of that is, we don't want to practice certain habits or disciplines who calls them that that's an awful word discipline and I hear things like repetition is boring and it just doesn't feel natural and it's not authentic and I just want to be myself and I want to gag thank you Um, organic don't ever say the word organic to friend you'll get a lecture you won't get it now but ask me later I'll give you the lecture God wants us to be our redeemed selves, not our natural selves, because our natural selves are sinful, rebellious against him, and it's our redeemed selves that thirsts after him. So when someone says, oh, it just doesn't feel natural. Well, of course it doesn't until you practice it and it becomes sexual. Sect- second nature ask anyone who plays a musical instrument if the first time they picked it up it just felt natural in their hands they were just one with the instrument i doubt it do you remember learning to drive okay how many people hit something on or before their driving test on my driving test hit another car on my driving test very embarrassing it wasn't second nature yet and, you know, the, the sudden thought of having to do all these things at once and crash. There I was with my dad's company car in another car on the driver test. That was great. Awesome. <laughs> things have to be practiced to become natural. Our brains are wired and rewired by repetitive action. I'm driving pl- That mommy urge. That mommy urge that reaches out and catches the vomit as it falls. That is not natural, but how many have done it? I mean, it's amazing, but that is not. And how many of you go, ooh right. See, it's not natural. It's, but it's, a, it's repeated. Unfortunately, and you just learn. You reach out and grab it or say, thank you. Say, thank you. I never said thank you as much as I told my kids to say, thank you. Say, thank you. Say, thank you. These things become second nature they don't start out that way spiritual maturity and the kind of endurance that paul had to get up and go back again after someone had tried to kill him with stones that was second nature that was not natural but it had become authentic because he took the available power of the holy spirit and he made using it a habit Books tell us that in order to make something a habit, you need to imitate and practice. Imitate, grandma cooking. That picture on the right, um, that is one of our most famous scum people. That bottom picture is Jack Blackstone. (laughs) Lindsay took this picture, and obviously she had not practiced. More practice, and maybe she would have nailed it in the real idea of the Christmas photo. This is all over the web. Practice serious practice. We had friends who went to India as missionaries. They were going to be living in North India, and they were not going to be able to pop down to 7-Eleven or Safeway for what they needed. She practiced before she went, making everything from scratch. Gave up an awful lot of convenience unnecessarily ahead of time to develop a habit of knowing the difference between the icing sugar and the flour, because cakes don't rise well when you make them with icing sugar. She found that out during practice. We had another friend, our age, um, who grew up in the Soviet Union, and he said their youth group used to practice extreme fasting. Why? Not in case, but for when they were arrested and put in jail. And Alexei himself spent eight years in Siberia and said he did a lot better than many of the other prisoners because he had practiced extreme fasting and deprivation. Those are some extreme cases. But you practice to develop spiritual maturity, perseverance, other good habits. If you've ever had a coach in a sport or any kind of a discipline, you know, they'll tell you, do it again, do it again, do it again. And you're like, how many fricking times do I have to do it again? Practice it. It has to become second nature. For us in particular, here are some practices I would urge all of us to both imitate in those we see doing them well and to practice so that we can form good habits in our faith. We may not be in the position that Paul was, where life or death depended on it, where he had to get up and go back. To the city again, but here's a few. To re, here's a few habits to develop. Remember your faith. I like writing it this way because the facts of Christianity are the glue that knits us together into a whole person that we are. Paul knew about Christ's death and resurrection. He knew that all would be redeemed. He knew at Christ's second coming, this kingdom would be culminated. Righteousness would be established. He knew these things as fact. And he let that guide his thoughts and his actions, that confidence in the facts of Christianity is knit with truth and glued with God's promises because we, more often than not, tend to live rather schizophrenic, frenetic lives. We're great and holy when we're here Sunday night. And Monday to Saturday, that could be a crapshoot. We need to unify our lives and slow down long enough to consider how faith should actually affect daily decisions. I had a friend once who worked for Quest back when that was a thing, and he was told to lay off his department. Fun. He figured out, as he just looked at the list of names of single moms and entry-level college grads and high school grads, and he thought that with his experience and his expertise, And the fact that he'd had a couple decades to develop good spending habits and save money. He went to his bosses and he said, how about if I quit? And that should provide the salary for all my department for another year. There is a faith decision. That is not natural to say, no, no, no. Keep them, take me. They didn't actually accept that offer, but it bought time. It bought time. But that—that that was putting faith into practice. I remember when I was trying to choose a place to do a PhD, and I was think, looking at some places in the UK. What it cost fifty to sixty thousand dollars for a degree? And one friend said to me, "You guys really enjoy giving." If you're spending that much money on an education, that's less you're going to have to give. Is that the way you want to spend? Is that what you want to do? And I thought, crap, no, that is not what I want to do. So I found a very, very inexpensive school on the continent. But that challenge about, no, 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 before you make that decision, where is faith? Re-remember, reevaluate. If Christianity isn't working out for you, Put the pieces together again With the help of somebody for whom it is working if you, Maybe you've been trying to make a convenient Christianity And trying to make God fit into little boxes That suit your lifestyle Maybe you need to destruct your lifestyle And remember it Put the body back together again According to God's truth Second habit would be showing up you are the choir. I get to preach to you right now. Worship services are intentionally developed here at Scum in order to help us develop good habits and character. We say often after the ser- after the sermon when we're getting into the communion part it's time for you to do business with God. Well, the second you show up, God is doing business with you. The fact that you're here is putting yourself in a position to hear from the God who is already present, not because he likes this building in particular, but because his people are gathering. And are some of the elements that we use in a service. We do gather. You'll hear songs. Kind of tells you, slow down, shut up, pay attention. We have gathering songs to bring us into God's presence. Music is a great way of bringing up your emotions that maybe you didn't even want to think about, and no way could you put in words. We have a gathering prayer. Get our hearts and our minds focused. When we're showing up like this, we are building habits. We listen to the scripture. We're letting God speak. It's his word. Every week, we have prayer. We say audacious things like, your sins are forgiven. Whoa, or we say things like God hears our prayer. We have the worth and the dignity and God has the power to forgive sins. And every week we rehearse this, we say this, we're trying to rehabituate ourselves, change our habits, get our focus, click, click, click on God and not on the patterns of the world that says, what's in it for me? Are you worth it? You screwed up once. Why should I trust you a second time? Here every week you will hear your sins are forgiven. God hears your prayers. We do communion every week because every time we do it, we are remembering Christ and the sacrifice he made for us. His death and resurrection make it possible for us to have a relationship with God. And it levels the playing field. You don't have to pay for communion. You don't have to be better than the person sitting next to you. The welcome that followers of Jesus receive in communion just levels the playing field between all of us. And we do that every week as a reminder that we all need a Savior. At the end of the service, we do the Lord's Prayer, and all this is very intentional. The Lord Jesus taught us to pray, our Father, that prayer, 2,000 years old, right out of Scripture. Jesus taught us to pray it, so we were remembering him. We sing this short song of praise called the doxology. It was written in the 1600s. So we're remembering that we're not in this alone. Thousands of years, millions of believers before us. These are the habits we develop just through coming to a worship service. And then we have a benediction, bene, good diction, words, good words to send us out to remind us that it's not about how good we feel when we come here. It's about the habits and the reforming of our minds that we then take out so that we can be Christ-like to others. So don't ever think that you're just coming to a worship service that, you know, people threw a bunch of things in the air and they fell down that way. So, okay, I guess that's how we do it. Or every other church does it that way, so that's how we do it. Or oh, my, every week, This yeah, every week, every fricking week, because we need to keep developing the habits. If you haven't picked up an instrument in 10 years, you're going to be pretty dang rusty. If you haven't worshiped publicly in 10 years, you're going to get rusty. And we want to keep the habits of connecting with the Lord foremost. And the next habit is do it again. Guess what? Do it again. Do it again. Ask anyone in December, what does your family do for Christmas or what do you like to do for Christmas? Well, and they will tell you exactly the way it's supposed to be. This is when we open presents. This is when we decorate. This is when we go to grandma's. We love customs, we do. We all have customs and habits. Birthdays. Oh, if somebody messes up your birthday, you feel miserable. There's a way to celebrate your birthday, and you want it done. Bedtime rituals, not just for children. Waking up rituals, don't talk to me until I've had my coffee. We have customs. We do like to do things again and again. We're a church full of artists and we're creative. I'm sorry, but we like things that we're familiar with, that have worked, and we want them to work again. We need daily rhythms of worship. We need intentional conversation with God throughout the day, through studying scripture, and we need the weekly habit of doing with others what should be daily habits every day. Whether you like it, whether it feels natural, whether it's not meeting my needs. Yes, it is. Worship and prayer and study meet your needs because it puts you in a humble position before the Lord of the universe. Worshiping with others meets your needs because it tells you that you are part of a body that supports you and that you have responsibilities beyond yourself toward others. Worshiping together meets our needs, and using some of these ancient elements and some of the newer elements tells us that we're connected across time, 2,000 years of Christianity, across all cultures, who will say the the Lord's Prayer, same as we do, Reminds us that we're not in this alone. Great habits to develop, to repeat, to imitate. Last habit of forming good habits. Change your focus. I had a friend once who told me that he could not be prejudiced. How could he be prejudiced? He didn't even know a black person. Okay, this is the mid-90s, 1990s. (laughs) not 1990s. he'd never heard of redlining, you know, where um, certain districts can get mortgages, others can't, and informal unwritten agreements that nobody would sell to that color in this neighborhood. He'd never heard of it. Of course, he never met a black person in his neighborhood out in the suburbs. never stopped to consider college admission essays and whose sounded good, and whose didn't sound so hot. So he never stopped to consider why he got to go to college. Never met any black people there. He never considered basic racial profiling or the fact that blacks don't show up a lot, at least even a decade ago, in certain professions because, you know, you get a job from whom you know, and if you don't know someone, then you don't get the job. And guess what? In his little field, it was lily, lily white, He didn't realize he was a product of his culture. He honestly thought, I can't possibly be, how can I be prejudiced? I don't even know a black person to be prejudiced against. We're all products of our culture. We all have allegiances to something. And if you have not habitually and intentionally become clear in your mind what you're worshiping and what goals you're going toward, you're going to get sucked in to the deep currents and the dominant mindset of the culture. Habits of culture will deform us, and our Christian practices and habits reform us in order to transform us. But culture on its own, left to its own, without our intentional understanding, is deforming and will lead us away from a Christ-like character. Standing in the aisle of King Supers one day, staring at the tea. And the manager says, are you finding what you're looking for? And I said, no, I'm looking for fair trade tea. Well, it's right there in front of you. No, that's organic tea. It's not fair trade. What's the difference? And I was a little bit ticked at the time. And I said, organic is good for me. But fair trade is good for the manufacturer and the growers. Oh, All right. This was two years ago, folks. Food sources are a big deal to us, right? Well, the second, you know, the point with the product of our culture is, do you know where your opinions come from? Do you know the source of what you believe and hold to be natural? Is it biblical or is it pop culture? Doesn't mean you need to go out and change everything you've ever thought, but ask yourself, what's the source? what's the source of this idea? Where do I get the idea that I need to raise my kids to be independent? Where do I get the idea that we must live in a democracy? Where do I get the idea? Now that's not going to make it black and white. It's going to make for some fantastic conversations, but let us not assume. Let's figure out the source of what we're doing and believing. And then what's the narrative of your life? We all have a narrative. We all have the tapes we play. If anybody could have played the victim tape, it would have been Paul. They keep trying to stone me. And I was shipwrecked. I can't get justice from the governor. Been in jail for two years waiting for my trial. We'll get to that eventually. Could have been a great victim. He could have been very, very bitter. I mean, right at his conversion, Ananias Was told the guy who is instrumental in bringing his sight back You know tell him that he is to be my witness to the gentiles And i'll show him how much he has to suffer for my name Oh, thanks for dealing me that hand to god But he was neither victim nor was he bitter Paul's focus was grace and hope he habitually reminded himself Just look through his letters hope promise Gratitude He urged others to imitate him. He stayed in community. He hung out with hopeful people These are habits we need to develop to develop our character to develop Any character any any perseverance if we are to persevere in faith in a hostile world Paul went back because he was compelled by the christ-like character that he had cooperated with the holy spirit in growing in him he wasn't surprised or deterred by suffering he was able to focus on grace and hope we build character by remembering our faith by showing up by doing consistently the habits that are growing even when they don't initially feel natural and by changing focus to ask ourselves the difference between what our culture teaches us and what Christ teaches us, and by carefully, carefully writing the narrative and explaining our own lives. We're going to continue with the worship service now. All the elements I talked about, I hope, have a little bit more meaning for you, and if you realize they're intentional, they're just not haphazard thrown together. And one of the important elements we will have in a bit is the opportunity to pray with other people in the prayer cave So after we have some corporate prayer and we begin musical worship again and taking communion, that prayer cave will be open. Folks will be there who would be very happy to pray with you about any concern you have or any random talk you need to have with someone. So thanks.